are going through this book chapter by chapter and verse by verse through a, a sequence of subseries so that we can more adequately cover the subject matter. Uh, right now we are in chapter 12, and today's message is really cool. We're going uh, to be all over the place in the scriptures. We're going to be going to the Old Testament. Uh, we're going to be seeing a lot of neat things because this is a really, really uh, powerful section of scripture because today Jesus is going to discuss how only the faithless and distracted seek a sign. Okay, now I call today's message, Here's Your Sign. Anybody remember that? Who was it? Jeff Foxworthy, wasn't it? Yeah, there you go. You've got to know your hillbillies. Listen. But anyway, you'll see why I named it that as we, as we go through this message. But the Pharisees had personally, I mean personally, witnessed several of Jesus' great miracles. For example, I mean, they saw him heal. They saw him cast out demons. I mean, they saw him raise someone from the dead. Yet, these signs weren't enough for them. They wanted something even bigger, right? So, here's the problem. Seeking more than the promises of God in order to believe is a sign of trouble. It's a big sign of trouble because it reveals a lack of faith, and it kind of reveals that maybe your heart is starting to harden toward the truth. So, today we're going to take a look at that. Let's jump right in. It's Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 38. And it says, one day, some teachers of religious law and Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to show us a miraculous sign to prove your authority. Okay, so the Jewish leaders said they wanted a miraculous sign to prove that he was from God, to prove that he had God's authority. Now, this was just a faithless and an ignorant request because they had already seen it. They had seen so many things, they'd witnessed his power, yet they asked for a sign. I mean, I think if I saw someone cast out demons, I think that's a pretty good sign. What do you think? I mean, raising someone from the dead, that one would probably sell me right there. Healing people would probably sell me, but they wanted a more miraculous sign. Now, that that word's kind of funny because in the Greek, it's simeon, and it means sign, miracle, or a distinguishing mark. I think healing people is a distinguishing mark, but they wanted something more, right? Now, here's the problem. They just continually kept raising the standard. They continually kept raising the standard for Jesus to prove who he was. But down deep, I kind of wonder sometimes if what they really wanted him to do, remember, they were in subjection to the Romans. They were under Roman rule, and their dream was to be the powerful leading nation again sometimes i wonder when they asked for this miraculous sign this distinguishing mark if what they were really asking for was listen overthrow the romans make us the most powerful nation again and then maybe we'll believe see this was completely selfish because they craved power they craved authority And so basically, I believe they were asking him, just overthrow the Romans, then then we'll believe you, because that was their perception of what the Messiah was. They looked at him in a more carnal fashion than they looked at him in a spiritual fashion. They wanted a Messiah to come and make them a powerful nation again. All right? And here's the thing. Regardless, they had already seen enough to believe. They just didn't want to. Honestly, I think they just became kind of comfortable with the religious status quo. Right? Have you ever met somebody that's like that? Have you ever been that person to where you get comfortable doing what you perceive as the right thing with your religion? You go to church on Sunday. Maybe you go to a Wednesday service or a small group. 
Maybe you help out with the soup kitchen, and you just do the things that, that people in your church deem righteous. And in doing those things, you become comfortable. And trust me, as a pastor, when you come up with new ideas, you always hear people say, well, we've never done it that way before. You know what I mean? This is what I think of when I think of the Jews. I think they had become comfortable with the religious status quo, and only having someone overthrow Rome would really get their attention. You know, it's sad that we're, we're still kind of like the Jewish leaders in this aspect because we constantly ask for signs. We really do. Now, let's be honest. How many of you have asked God for a sign about something? Just raise your hand. Be honest. Good. There you go. The rest of you, yes, you did. Right? Because we ask, we ask for signs, right? And, and, it, and it frustrates me a little bit because what we should be doing is just resting in God's promises and in his word. That's what we should be resting in. We should just make God aware of what we need, make God aware of the direction that we're seeking, and just faithfully wait for him to do something. Listen, God is going to do something. And when he does it, it'll be so easily identified. But what we like to do is we like to be sure, and there's probably two reasons for that. We'll say, God, if you want me to do this, make blank happen. Anybody ever done that? Do you realize you're defining the terms with God? Do you realize that? You're saying, God... In order for me to move, in order for me to do anything, you've got to show me on my terms that I'm going to do it before I do it. I won't believe until you do it that way. I mean, that's really, honestly, what we're saying. Instead of saying, God, you lead and I'll follow. And you know, that seems like a simple prayer, but if you just say, God, I know what your word says. I know what your promises are. I'll just follow. You lead, and when the door opens, I'll walk through it. Don't say, Lord, when a door opens that's electric and has, you know, purple trim and tinted glass. And, you know, don't, don't set the terms. So often I think we do that. We set the terms because the root of that problem is sometimes we just don't have the faith to step out and trust God for something we know we should do. Sometimes we really don't. I had a man come to me about this project. And he said, you know, I'm glad to see you're really moving forward with, you know, with this project. Now you guys need to build. I said, yeah, yeah. And he said, uh, you know, you need to stop worrying about the money. And in my mind, I'm thinking, easy to say when you have it. Right? He said, listen, when we built our church, everyone thinks we had the money. He said, we borrowed $2.8 million. And you know what we were doing on the board? And I said, what? He said, praying for where that money was going to come from. But we believed it was time. We stepped out on faith, and God provided. He said, you preach faith. Sometimes you've got to step out and live your faith. He said, do you need the room? Do you, you want to do more? Step out. It really, it really convicted me. Because sometimes we're saying, God, we will start building. You know, we'll start doing this project. We'll start missions when it's 74 degrees in January. You know, that's the kind of things we do. We ask for signs. And sometimes we ask for signs because we really don't want to do something we know we're supposed to. Have you ever done that before? You're like, well, I... You know, I'm not sure if, you know, God wants me to go on this mission trip, or I'm not sure if God wants me to help, you know, when we're, you know, feeding the homeless. I'm not sure. And down deep, we don't really want to do it. So we're like, well, God, if you want that, to, if you want me to do that, you know, just let a German shepherd run through the middle of Walmart. And you're walking through Walmart, and a German shepherd runs through, and you said, I meant a white one. You know what I mean? Sometimes we, we actually ask for a sign because we're hoping he doesn't give us one because we really don't want to do what, he asked, what he's asking us to do. But I'm telling you, we've got, sometimes we're just like them. We ask for a sign that's self-serving or we ask for a sign because we struggle 
just stepping out on faith and trusting the promises of God. We need to think more like and pray more like Jesus in these situations. I mean, this is a very famous prayer, Luke twenty two forty one, talking about Jesus. It said, he walked away about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me, talking about the crucifixion he knew was coming. Yet I want what? Your will to be done what? Not mine. See, Jesus looked at God's will as whatever you want, I'll do it. Here's what I'd like. Because the human side of Jesus was saying, I'm not really thrilled about having spikes driven through my wrists, right? But he said, listen, either way, I'll follow your lead. I'll trust you anything you want so that your will can be accomplished in my life. All right? I, I just, I love that. But now, let's move on because they asked for this miraculous sign, for this distinguishing mark. And I love how he responds to them. Okay, Matthew 12, 39. But Jesus replied, only an evil and adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign or a distinguishing mark. But the only sign I will give, uh, I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Okay, now, I love how he responded because the first thing he does is he criticizes their lack of faith and commitment. He calls them an evil and adulterous gener- generation. Now, imagine how that went over. We're talking about the Jewish spiritual leaders, and he says, seriously, you guys are evil or wicked and adulterous. That's, that's what you guys are. Right now, I think evil is pretty self-explanatory. I don't need to explain why he called him evil. Anybody confused as to why he called him evil? Okay, good. But he called him an adulterous generation, and that's worthy of a second look. See, Israel was supposed to be God's chosen people. They were his, like his bride, and they were supposed to be faithful to God and to God alone, like, like a wife is to her husband, or a husband is to his wife. They were supposed to be faithful. But over the years, several things had taken their attention off of God, and they started to get a love for things they shouldn't. Their worship was shifting from God to other things. They were starting to marry among pagan nations, which they weren't, which they weren't supposed to do. So they were starting to accept idol gods we see in the Old Testament. They were starting to love power and position. They were starting to to shift their love and their dedication and their commitment from God to other things. Their worship was leaving him and going to other things. In the Old Testament, it was idol gods. In the New Testament, it was their power and authority and their religion. And what happened is they were cheating on God because they took the love and worship they were supposed to have for him and gave it to someone else. So they were committing adultery on God by replacing him with other things. Have you ever done that? I'm not going to make you raise your hands on that one. But I'm telling you what, when something pulls your eye off God, when you start to give yourself more to other things than you give yourself to God, you are committing adultery on God. This is why he called them an evil and adulterous generation. Right Now the second thing he said here was he said that they weren't going to get any other sign except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. Okay, now I know everybody's heard the story of Jonah and what? The whale. You know the Bible never actually says it was a whale. Never actually even says it was a big fish. I'll tell you about, we'll, we'll talk about that more in a little bit here. But see, in Jonah's time, I'm going to kind of abbreviate this story, but in, in Jonah's time, there was this large Assyrian city called Nineveh. It was actually the second largest city next to Babylon. And Nineveh was a pagan city that was, I mean, exceedingly 
evil and godless. I mean, very evil and very godless. Now, it was located on the outskirts of Mosul in modern-day uh, uh, northern Iraq, but, but Nineveh was known for being extremely, extremely brutal to their enemies. For instance, when they would capture a city or a kingdom or whatever, when they would capture it, they would take the king or the leader and they would slit them open and, and pull their entrails out while they were alive and then drag them through the city so that everyone could see that their king no longer had power. I mean, overkill, right? But, I mean, this, they were just brutal people. And besides their brutality, they were extremely sexually immoral. I mean, I'm not even going to get into that. Extremely sexually immoral. And they loved witchcraft and sorcery. Matter of fact, I mean, they had many, many gods that they worshipped. But the one thing they didn't do was they didn't fear the true God of Israel. They had gotten to the point where they felt completely invincible. And they were just going to do and say whatever they pleased. So God comes to Jonah. Now you can imagine this is not the most popular place with most Jews. With most people, with most of God's people, this wasn't the most popular place. But God comes to Jonah and he says, I want you to go preach to Nineveh. And I want you to warn them about the judgment that's coming. Look at this, Jonah, starting in ver, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amite, and saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship that was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it uh, to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Here's the deal. Here's the problem. Here's why Jonah took off. Jonah hated Nineveh. He hated the people. He hated the leaders. He hated Nineveh. He knew how evil they were, and he didn't want to go cry out against them and, 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 and preach repentance to them because he did not want them to repent. He could not stand them. A lot of times we think that in the Old Testament, the prophets were all perfect and never had any hang-ups. Listen, he hated the Ninevites. Basically, he was saying, I'm okay with them going to hell, God. Why do you want me to go to them? I don't want to go there. They deserve it. So he was okay with them being evil and being punished for it. He didn't even want to go, so he decides to do something that's stupid that we still try to do today. I'll talk about that in a little bit. But he not only decides to disobey God, but he tries to run from him. Anybody here ever try to run from God? <laughs> People say, no, I've never done that. Yes, you have. Yes, you have. Listen, he thinks he's going to actually outrun God. Like God's going to come down there and go, gosh, where did he go? You know, he was here just a second ago. You know, he goes down and he gets on a ship headed to Tarshish. Now, for those of you who don't know, Tarshish is the opposite way of where he was supposed to go. So he's like, I don't want to do it. I don't like them. I don't care if they die. I don't care if they go to hell. I'm going to get on a ship, and I'm going to hide from God. And get this, he even goes down inside the hull of the ship. So just in case God finds the ship, he won't see him down in the hull of the ship. You know what I mean? So he goes down into the hull of the ship, right? So God says, seriously, seriously. So he sends this huge storm. And it starts battering the ship. And they're throwing stuff overboard, trying to lighten the load. And they're looking at each other going, somebody here has sinned. Somebody here has done something wrong that, that's brought God's wrath on us. Who is it? So they decided to cast lots. Now, anybody know what cast lots mean? 
See, a lot of the old-timers will say that casting lots was gambling. That's their excuse for, you know, going against gambling. It is not gambling. It has nothing to do with gambling. I mean, just an FYI, that's how the apostles chose the replacement for, you know, Judas. But anyway, it was basically like drawing straws. And whoever the short lot fell upon was the one, you know, that was chosen. So they decided to cast lots to see whose sin it was that brought this storm. And the lot fell on who? Jonah. All right, I can just see Jonah sitting there going, please don't let me get the short lot, please. <laughs> but the lot falls on him, so he just openly admits, listen, I, I, I disobeyed God. And the only way you're going to be safe is if you throw me overboard. I'll be honest with you, I don't know if I'd have taken that route. But he says, the only way you're going to be safe is just to throw me overboard. So it doesn't even sound like they, you know, tried to debate it. They're like, fine, they throw him overboard, right? And what we know is that a very large sea creature swallowed Jonah whole. Okay, now, I love this because the atheists and those people who like to argue always say, well, scientifically, a human can't fit into the belly of a whale, and because of the size of a whale's throat, blah, 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 and I'm like, yeah, that's great, it wasn't a whale. Well, even if it were a big fish, I'm like, yeah, really, you know, it wasn't a big fish. We don't know what it was. If it was a big fish, do you think God can make one big enough to swallow the guy? I mean, he made the world six days. Anybody think he has a problem making some fish? Right, so he makes this large creature, whatever it is, and it, it swallows Jonah whole. And for three days, he's in the belly of this creature. And, the, you know, something miraculous happened. He changed his mind about doing what God asked him to do. He changed his mind. And so this creature barfs him up on the shores of, guess where? Nineveh. Man, can you imagine what he looked like after being in the stomach of a creature for three days? Talk about a bad hair day. If he had any. All those stomach acids, he was probably pale like me, right? And he gets barfed up on the shore of Nineveh, and so guess what? He just starts preaching. Now, sometimes I wonder, and this is my morbid mind, I wonder if the reason the Ninevites listened to him was here comes this guy with all his hair burnt off, pale, you know, he's got dishpan hands except all over his body, smelling like fish guts, going, y'all better repent. <laughs> They're all going, hey, we'll go, whatever, man. No, but this guy starts preaching, Jonah just starts preaching, and the Ninevites heard Jonah's warning and repented. They heard his warning and they repented. Okay, now there's a lot more to that story, but that's where I'm going to stop, because what exactly is the sign of Jonah? Look at Matthew 12, 40. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. See, Jesus was saying the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah, meaning the only sign you're going to get is my upcoming death, burial, and resurrection. That's the only sign you're going to get. You want an identifying mark. You want something that's going to stand out, something that's really going to prove who I am. Here it is. They're going to kill me. They're going to put me in a tomb. I'm going to be three days in that tomb, and then I'm going to defeat death, hell, and the grave. I'm going to come out, and I'm going to ascend to heaven and give everyone a free opportunity for eternal life as a result of that. Right? This is was the sign he was talking about. Here he's saying, listen, you've had plenty of signs. You've had plenty of time to believe. Plenty of time to believe. So the only sign you're going to get now 
is the whole reason I came here. When I go to that cross and die, and I'm put in a tomb, and when I rise again, that, that is the sign you'll get. Now, there's something, something more to this, too. I believe that Jonah died when he was in the belly of that creature. I really do. And people go, well, why do you believe that? I mean, he was in the belly of a creature underwater for three days. So, I mean, anybody want to test that theory? It wasn't in a submarine for three days. But think about the analogy that he's making here. Think about the comparison that he's making here. He's saying, as Jonah was in the belly of that creature for three days, so will I be in my tomb for three days. Was Jesus alive in his tomb? They had to kill him to put him in that tomb. I believe that Jonah was dead in that whale. And when he was puked up on that shore, he had a new mindset. And he's saying, as he was dead and and entombed in his watery tomb for three days and resurrected and did what God told him and was successful, so also I will be killed. I will be put in my tomb for three days and I will come out and be successful in God's will. I think that is an awesome, awesome comparison. Right? I mean, they both had a commission from God. They both had to die first. They both were in their tombs for three days, and they both rose again, and they both were successful in doing the will of God. I just think that is powerful. And he's saying, and that is the only sign that you're going to get because you've missed all the other ones. Well, then he jumps to another illustration. Right? Now, imagine, imagine how powerful it was when he said, like Jonah, that sign is what's going to make you That's the only sign you're going to get from here on out is that sign. But what he says now, I mean, talk about insulting. Listen to this, Matthew 12, 41. The people of Nineveh, pagan nation, right? Not God's chosen people. The people of Nineveh will stand up against this generation on judgment day and what? And condemn it. So he's saying a pagan nation, a nation that's not God's chosen people, will be your judges. And he, mo- and he goes on here. It says, For they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. Now someone what? Greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. So basically he's saying, listen, the Ninevites are going to be your judges in judgment. And you know why? They were pagans, but they believed Jonah's preaching. They believed God's word through Jonah and they repented they believed the messenger God sent them and they weren't even God's chosen people but you being God's chosen people who know the scriptures who should know how to apply the scriptures have rejected the Messiah you knew was coming that met every criteria the Messiah was supposed to meet despite the fact you've witnessed all these miracles you've seen the power that God has has accomplished through me you know who I am but you still reject me so for that reason, the Ninevites were more faithful, or more faithful and more obedient than you were. And because of that, they will stand up against you in judgment. Imagine how they felt about that. How dare he say that a pagan nation will judge God's people. But that's exactly what he said. And then he, it gets even worse for them. All right, because he talks about another, you know, unbelieving person who is not a Jew that will be their judge. Matthew 12, 42, the queen of Sheba. Anybody ever heard of her? You ever hear people say, what do you think you are, the queen of Sheba? You ever hear that one? <laughs> Cracks me up. Says the queen of Sheba will also stand up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it. 
For she came from a distant land to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Now someone what? Greater than Solomon is here, but you refuse to listen. Now let me give you some background. Okay, Solomon was made a promise by God. God said, listen, Solomon, anything you ask for, anything, anything, I'll give it to you. Anything you ask for. And he didn't ask for what you think most people would ask for. Solomon said, I just want the wisdom to lead, to lead your people righteously. I want to be a good, wise leader to your people. And that impressed God because he could have asked for wealth and he'd have got it. He could have asked for the power over all of his enemies and he would have gotten it. Anything he asked for, God promised to give him. So God was so impressed with that that he actually answered that prayer and gave him wisdom, but he also gave him a ton more. Look at this, 2 Chronicles 1.11. God said to Solomon, Because your greatest desire is to help your people, and you did not ask for wealth, riches, fame, or even the death of your enemies or long life, but rather you asked for wisdom and knowledge to properly govern my people, I will certainly give you the wisdom and knowledge you requested. But... I will also give you wealth, riches, and fame such as no other king has had before you or will ever have in the future. So not only did he give him the wisdom he wanted to be a wise leader, he also gave him everything else that most people would ask for, the wealth, the fame, everything. So this queen of Sheba heard about this. She heard about this king who was super wealthy, had great possessions, was super wise, and she just had to see if it was true. And what she saw when she went there amazed her. 1 Kings chapter 10, starting in verse 4. It says, When the queen of Sheba realized how very wise Solomon was, and when she saw the palace he had built, she was overwhelmed. She was also amazed at the food on his tables, the organization of his officials in their splendid clothing, the cupbearers, and the burnt offering Solomon made at the temple of the Lord. She exclaimed to the king, Everything I heard in my country about your achievements and wisdom is true. I didn't believe... What was said uh, until I arrived and saw it with my own eyes. In fact, I had not heard the half of it. Your wisdom and prosperity are far beyond what I was told. How happy your people must be. What a privilege for your officials to stand here day after day listening to your wisdom. Listen, praise the Lord what? Praise the Lord your God who delights in you and has placed you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king so you can rule with justice and righteousness. So this pagan queen comes in just to be nosy. I mean, let's be honest, she was just being nosy. She just wanted to see if he really had all this cool stuff. And she gets there and finds out just how exceedingly wealthy he was and wise he was and how God had really given him the things she'd heard about and even more she saw all that, and she was so amazed that she praised the name of his God. You know why? Because Solomon, his whole life was evidence of God's power to provide. And when she saw what had happened, she believed there was a God in heaven, and it was blessing him. Now, was Solomon perfect? No, you don't want to read about his, his extracurricular activities, but he was a wise leader, and he was wealthy beyond measure, and it was just a beacon to show people the power of God. And it made her believe that the true God of Israel was true. I mean, she believed it when she saw his life. So Jesus was pointing out to the Jews that even, even Sheba, this, this pagan queen, was more observant about the power of God than they are. Right? She 
wasn't raised to know the tradition. She wasn't raised to know the word of God. Yet when she saw his power, like they had been seeing it all around him, she believed he was true, and they didn't. So on judgment day, this pagan queen would condemn them because she believed when she saw the signs of his power and praised his name, and they would not. Isn't that powerful? And imagine what they're saying. Now, now Jesus said, the Ninevites are going to judge you, the pagans who repented. The queen of Sheba will judge you on judgment day because she saw his power and believed. You're so foolish and so religious and so legalistic and so stuck on yourself that even pagans will be in better condition on the day of judgment than you who should have known better. Right now, even though it's not to the same extent, sometimes we do the same thing because we see the evidence of God moving all around us, all around us. And you know what? Even as believers, sometimes we just get immune to it and we ignore it. We do, we ignore it. And, and it, it pains me to see this. It, it, it really does because he gets less and less of our praise. Have you noticed that? Less and less of our praise. You barely hear people talk about God anymore. Even believers, and that troubles me. You know, you hardly ever hear that anymore. He's getting less and less of our praise. He's getting less and less of our worship. He's getting less and less of our resources, our commitment Think about it for a second. We prioritize pretty much everything above church, don't we? Think about that for a second. You've been given eternal life. You say, Pastor Chris, this sounds like a, good tr a guilt trip. Put your seatbelts on. It is. Okay, if this bothers you, you're guilty. Listen. We prioritize everything over church. The Bible says not to have failed to assemble together as has become the habit of some. Right? Here's what happens is, we start thinking, well, I'm going to heaven. And, you know, going to church isn't going to make me, you know, any closer to God, which is a lie. You know, and so what we do is we, it starts small. and We start saying, well, you know, I really want to do this. I'll just, where can I cut something out of my week? Oh, I'll cut church out. Right? And the next thing you know, it's optional. He says, don't fail to do it. Don't fail to assemble together. And now we've made it optional. Now, don't take me wrong. People can take vacations and stuff like that. But literally, literally, it's to the point in this day and age where it's just an option, not the option. It really is. Church has, has lost its priority to pretty much everything. Pretty much everything. Right? Listen, here's another thing. I mean, we prioritize our love for God to other things. We desire to know what's going to happen on our show more than we desire to know what God thinks about things by looking at his word. We don't crave his word anymore. Right? I mean, I'm saved. That's the way we look at it. Drives me, drives me crazy. Church takes a backseat. The love of God takes a backseat. We give him our financial leftovers. We really do. You talk about money in church and everybody starts to sit back. <laughs> it's all they want is money. You go to the golf course and they say $1,600 for a membership. Makes sense to me. Right? You ever think about that? You know, what does a church need with money? What does Nike need with more money? Right? Think about it. I mean, I'm not against having things. I'm just saying we give them our financial leftovers. I can't tell you how many times I tell people, well, I don't, I don't really support my church. I don't really support missions and stuff like that. Why? Well, I mean, I got a lot of expenses. 
You know, maybe the reason you don't have much left over is because you always give God your leftovers. Maybe if God got what was first, you have a lot more left over. Just throwing it out there, right? We give him our financial leftovers. We give him the leftovers of our time. Serving him, eh. you know, maybe at Christmas. Maybe on Easter, the biggies, right? But definitely not in the summer. That's lake month. You know what I mean? Those are lake months. He gets the leftovers of our time. He gets the leftovers of our talent. So many people are so gifted and have so many ways that they could be serving the Lord. But it ain't making them any money, so why? We give them the leftovers of our talent. But you know what's ironic? When our troubles hit us, we expect God to give us his absolute best when we pray. And if he doesn't, we're mad at him. We're like, God, I will give you 2% of my effort, 2% of my finances, 2% of my talent, my time. But by goodness, if I call on you in trouble, you better give me 110% or I'm going to be mad at you and say that God doesn't answer prayer. Anybody see an imbalance there? We're more like these Jews we're reading about than we think. You know what I mean? We want to give very little, but we want to get a lot back. The Jews ask for a sign that meets their needs and meets their expectations, right? And no matter what he does, they just refuse to believe. But here's the thing. If God would have given them a physical sign, here's the here's your sign part. If God would have given them a sign to wear around their neck, you know what it would have said? Would it have said God's chosen people? No, he wouldn't want them advertising that the way they acted. It would have said blind, deaf, and dumb. That's what it would have said. Because that's what they had become with regards to God. Right? Now, what would our sign be? You guys anxious to hear this one? What would our sign be? Think about it. We live in the most prosperous nation in the world. The most prosperous nation in the world. I mean, we have great resources. We have the best medical care. We have religious freedom. No one's kicking our doors in for worshiping Jesus like they're doing in China and the Sudan. We live in the greatest nation on earth, the greatest nation on earth. And I know people want to argue about presidents and, and politics and parties, but here's what it boils down to, Democrat, Republican, Whig party, whatever. Here's what it boils down to. It's still the greatest nation on earth. And it's the greatest nation on earth because God blessed us because we used to make him first. We're in the greatest nation on earth, yet we show little, if any, appreciation or commitment to God. And it's getting less and less every day. I mean, every day. So if God were to give us a sign, it would probably say ungrateful, uncommitted, and spoiled. That's probably what our sign would say. We live in the greatest nation in the world, and we want to take prayer out of schools. I mean, we live in the greatest nation in the world, and they mock and joke about Christianity on every TV show. Right? And promote everything that God's against. And we sit back and laugh at those shows and act like it's no big deal. So our sign would read ungrateful, uncommitted, and spoiled. But here's the cool thing before I close. Listen, the bonus is, is unlike the Jews of that time, we still have time to change our sign. We still have time to change it. 
Because if we would turn to or turn back to God, our sign could read blessed, thankful, and ready to serve. We could change that. We could start remembering how blessed we really are, being more thankful, putting our attention back on God, putting our time, talent, and treasure back to God, allowing people to see our lives shine the power of God like Solomon's life did. We could do that, and our sign would change to bless, thankful, and ready to serve. Can you imagine? Everybody talks about giving gifts this time of year. There's a gift you could give God back, the love and commitment that he's asked for since the day he created this place. Greatest gift you could give him. I'm going to go ahead and stop there. We'll pick up there next week. I'm going to ask if you would to please bow your heads. If this is your first time here, we always like to give a brief invitation. And here's why. Because we believe that God is still changing lives. Not just here, but for eternity. We also believe there's a lot of confusion about the simplest gift ever given. Religion has really messed up God's plan for eternal life. We've added so much to it. When in reality, God wanted it to be so easy that it sounds too good to be true. Because his son paid a great price to ensure that it would be free to us. And the Bible says that whoever believes has eternal life. So while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, there's someone here who doesn't know where they stand with, with God. I'm not going to point you out or have you come up front. I don't do that. But I just want to pray for you because I remember being that person unsure and searching. If you could just make eye contact and put your head right back down. Bless those people. And I'm just going to pray for you. I'm not going to chase you down after church. I just pray for those people. Bless those people. I'm going to pray for you. If you're listening or watching online, listen. God knows your heart. I'll be praying for you too. But believers, listen. The one thing we can take from this and the thing I want to pray for us about is that, you know, God has made so many promises for us. And he keeps his promises. I don't want us to become like the Jews and, and require some miraculous event before we'll serve him. Listen, if you want to see how amazing he is, give him the faith he asked for and trust him and you'll see it. I'm going to pray that our faith would be strong like that again. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for all that you do. I just, I just thank you for your love and your grace and I am so amazed. I say this every week, God, but I am amazed that you could love someone like me. I'm so amazed that despite the fact that we will never be perfect, that we will never be good, that your love for us was so great that you sent Jesus to die on our behalf so that he could be righteous on our behalf and we could just believe in him. I just thank you so much for that. And I just pray if there's someone here who doesn't know you, I don't know what it is that's got them confused. There's so many things the enemy's using. I just pray that whatever that is, you clear it from their mind and let them believe that what your son did was enough to guarantee their eternal life. Let them see the love that took him to the cross to die innocently so that they could have the free gift of eternal life. And if they make that decision today, I pray they contact us or a good Christian friend or organization near them so that they can have someone to walk with them in their new journey. And God, for those of us who already know you, it's so easy for us to become so distracted that we require something miraculous just to give the simple faith and service that God's asked for and always has asked for. I just pray, God, that, that we would trust your word I just pray that, that we would lean on you and trust in your promises and serve you expecting you to be amazing 
so that people will see our lives and see your blessing and provision in our lives and see your spirit working through our lives and it would draw them to you. I just pray that you go with us as we leave here and keep us safe. Let us live what we profess. And if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, I just pray we would come together and give you all the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of one more time. We just thank you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.